So we are in the... This wasn't going to be the last one of this series. This was going to be... There was going to be one more. But with moving to the new venue, I don't think I want to do what we were going to do. So what we were going to do next week is ask a whole bunch of questions. Uh, I was going to open the floor and let you ask questions that scare me. And actually, in all honesty, I was going to say, what do you guys think about that? And we would have worked them out together. Um, but I think we want to take the opportunity next Sunday to just recast the vision of why we're here, why we're doing what we're doing, what God wants to do with us in that new location. So we don't want to do that next week. Instead, we're going to do that this week. Um, I have got, we were supposed to be looking at what about science? How does science work with the Christian faith? So I am going to try and answer that question, but um, we are also going to try and make some space and some time for some of the questions that have been sent in, um, some of the questions that we've been discussed. But if you have got any questions that you haven't already told me about, then feel free to pipe up, put your thinking caps on, and when we get to that point, I'll make a little bit of space if we've got time. I'll caveat that with if we've got time. Uh, if not, we can always do another Sunday like that in the future at some point. So, what about science? Many people will try and tell you that science contradicts the Christian faith. You've come across these people, right? Um, we've got our fish stickers that we put on the back of our cars, some of us. Atheists have got one that, instead of having um, ichthus in Greek letters written inside the fish, have you seen the one that says Darwin? And you've got the little feet coming out of the fish to try and give a little nod to evolution. Uh, you've got other people that say, well, it's all just fairy tales, there's no proof. You might as well believe in the flying spaghetti monster. And, you know, really respectful stuff, right? Science shows us that the only things that exist are the things we can see, feel, taste, touch. There is no scientific proof for anything spiritual or supernatural. You know, religion used to make sense before science came along and explained it all. You know, you can forgive people thousands of years ago for believing in gods and things like that, but we know how it all works now. We know how life evolved. So we don't need the creation story. Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion. And in that book, he says that the universe we see has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. It's good to have a message of hope, isn't it? What do we say to that? How do we respond to that? Because they're so confident. Well, first point. Science did not compete with Christianity. Originally, back when the, the scientific method was being formed, it did not compete with Christianity. They will tell you different. Do not believe them. The scientific method actually emerged from a Christian worldview. Science came about precisely because Christianity was the prevailing theological and philosophical position in the West and what I mean by that is that the belief that there was a faithful God who could be relied upon to create a world with predictable and consistent ways of working led to forming the scientific method of hypothesis, experiment, adjust your hypothesis, retest, adjust your hypothesis, retest. This is now pretty well confirmed. That's the scientific method. And that only came about because we believed that there was a God 
who created the universe with set ways of working, with predictable ways of working, because he wasn't a capricious God, he wasn't a malicious God, he was a good God who we can know and trust and rely on. Amen. Amen. Princeton professor Hans Holverson said this, um, on the contrary, the first scientist believed our universe was designed and created by God according to a blueprint that can be discerned by rational creatures like ourselves. Since God was free to create however he chose, the only way to discover the blueprint of creation is by means of em empirical investigation. Going back to the 13th century, you have two Franciscan friars, Roger Bacon and William of Ockham. Who's heard of Ockham's razor? When given the choice of two different theories, you go with the simplest one. These are people in the 13th century Franciscan friars who laid the empirical and methodological foundations for that scientific method we talked about. Francis Bacon established and popularized it in the 16th century. In his essay of atheism, Francis Bacon wrote, it is true that a little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. What he's saying is, yeah, okay, if you think a little bit, you might think that there's no God. But if you think a little bit deeper, you will realize there's no other option. Robert Boyle, who's heard of Boyle's Law? It's about the relationship between the pressure of the of the pressure and the volume of gas when it's in a confined space. He was um, the person who came up with it. He was a devout Christian. He was heavily invested in evangelism and Bible translation, as well as these experiments that surfaced Boyle's law. You see, science emerged because Christians believed that God was good. Amen. Just a little cheeky meme. Richard Dawkins, I believe in the scientific method, so I don't believe in God. Whereas Francis Bacon from the 16th century, well, I invented the scientific method because I believe in God. That's what we're talking about here. Point two, the belief that the material world is all that exists is exactly that. It's a belief. It is presented to you as a foregone conclusion that cannot be challenged. And they will say it in terms of, you know, you've got the burden of proof. You're making the extraordinary claims. No. This belief that all we see here in touch is all that there is, it's more philosophy than science. It is not inherent to science itself. It cannot arise from science itself. It is imposed upon it by those who don't want to believe. It cannot come from science because all science can talk about is that stuff we see here in touch. If indeed there is something beyond all of that stuff. How can science surface it? The, the idea that they, this is all there is, is a belief. If there is no designer, why should we expect the universe to be consistent? Richard Dawkins says, this is exactly how we would expect the universe to be if there is no purpose, no plan, just blind, pitiless indifference. Except what I noticed from my GCSE biology teacher is that she couldn't stop herself talking about it evolved to be this way, almost as if there was some purpose. She couldn't stop herself and she kind of caught herself just short of saying it's like it was designed. Because she's not allowed to say that. <laughs> Point number three, do you know what? There are so many believing scientists. Einstein 
kept pictures of three scientific heroes on the wall of his study. Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, and James Clerk Maxwell. Now, Newton was a theist, but he was a confirmed theist. He wasn't a Christian. He didn't believe that Jesus was God in human flesh, but he passionately defended belief in God. Faraday was a passionate Christian, and he was really interested in the relationship between science and faith. Maxwell was an elder in the Scottish Presbyterian Church. One of Einstein's scientific heroes, an elder in an evangelical Presbyterian church. Lord Kelvin in the 19th century, you know Kelvin? He established the whole concept of absolute zero to the point that we have Fahrenheit, Celsius, and Kelvin. Kelvin, zero degrees Kelvin, is minus 273, I think it is, Celsius. And that is absolute zero when it is so cold that the molecules stop vibrating. You cannot get any colder. There is no limit below that. He is one of the first scientists who measured the age of the Earth in millions of years. Well, he was president of the Christian Evidence Society. And in a speech to that organization, he said this, I have long felt that there was a general impression in the non-scientific world that the scientific world believes science has discovered ways of explaining all the facts of nature without adopting any definite belief in a creator. I have never doubted that that impression was utterly groundless. Kelvin. There's a professor in MIT called Daniel Hastings who began following Jesus as a teenager in the United Kingdom. And he said this, I start by saying that there is a God who created the universe and he is not an impersonal God. Another MIT professor, Jing Kong, grew up in China and became a Christian when she was a grad student at the University of California in Berkeley. She says this, my research is only a platform for me to do God's work. His creation, the way he made this world is very interesting. It's amazing, really. Andrew Gosler, as the Oxford professor of applied ethnobiology, became a Christian from a secular Jewish background when he was already a professor. He says this, my coming to faith in Christ did not rest on a single issue such as the value of life. It was a holistic redefining of perspectives that came together through every aspect of my life. There is a Cambridge professor, Russell Cowburn. There is a guy, anyone heard of Alastair McGrath? Alastair McGrath wrote this book, Through a Glass Darkly, and he started his life as an atheist. He was baptised into the Church of Northern Ireland, and he went and studied the natural sciences. But while he was at university, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. He's now an ordained Anglican minister, and he holds three doctorates from the University of Oxford. One is a doctoral degree in molecular biophysics. One is a Doctor of Divinity degree in theology, and there is a Doctor of Letters degree in intellectual history. He's not a dum-dum. <laughs> He's looked into this stuff. This book is a, it's kind of an autobiography, but it's him telling his story. The subtitle is Journeys Through Science, Faith, and Doubt. This book tells the story of how I, a restless, free-thinking atheist with a love of science, found my way to an unfashionable but deeply rewarding, rational, and resilient way of understanding the world that I discovered was called Christianity. It's worth reading. You see, there are so many scientific people. Francis Collins was the director of the Human Genome Project to try and map the human genome. He converted to Christianity after reading Mere Christianity in university. There's a book I read, and I think it might be something like The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel. 
And he made this observation. It might not be that, but I, could, I remember I read it. He observed that when he was trying to organise a debate for an atheist against a Christian, he went to the science department of a university and they all said, well, no, we can't because we all believe. If you want an atheist, you've got to go to the philosophy department. <laughs> See, there are so many scientists who believe. And the final point is science is compatible with our faith. They just seek to answer different questions. Science can only look at the physical material world and it can only describe how things happen or how things will happen. What it can't tell you about is any purpose. It can't. There is no significant conflict between science and the Bible. People will try and tell you there is. They will try and imply that, well, the Bible says the earth was flat and that the sun revolves around the earth and all that kind of stuff. And that takes us to Galileo, which is the most famous battle between faith and science. Let's clear up a few things. First of all, Galileo was a Christian. So the debate about whether the earth goes around the sun or whether the sun goes around the earth was a debate between Christians. It was not a debate between non-Christians and Christians, with the Christians being the backwards people that held to what was at that point the highest cosmology. And that's another point. The cosmology that there is the earth and the sun goes around it was actually Aristotle's view. Aristotle came up with it. And the Catholic Church took it, applied it to the Bible, interpreted the Bible through that framework and would brook no disagreement. But you see, Galileo's theological point is that any Bible language that implies that the sun rotates around the earth was really just God making accommodations for the way the people at that time understood the world. God, of course, knows that the earth goes around the sun. God, of course, knows that the sun goes around other suns in this orbit of the Milky Way and that there are all sorts of other galaxies. But how is that going to make sense to an ancient Near East, Middle Eastern culture? They're going to be like, what are you talking about? Obviously, look, it goes over. They didn't have the way. So God, rather than give that superior knowledge he had, he accommodates them. That was Galileo's point. And do you know what? He wasn't innovating when he suggested that some elements of biblical language should be interpreted non-literally. Augustine in the fourth century said exactly the same thing. Augustine was talking to his people in his day and trying to encourage them to not make silly statements about things that they don't really know about. He says, it's a disgraceful and dangerous thing for a non-Christian to hear a Christian, presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense on these topics. That was what Augustine said. Slightly longer quote. If unbelievers find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well and hear him maintaining his foolish opinions about our books, how are they going to believe those books in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life and the kingdom of heaven? Augustine really wanted people to not speak where they have, any, where they have a lack of knowledge. That's why I don't go too often on about science and faith, because I'm not a scientist. Now, one of the mistakes you can get into as you try and reconcile and talk and debate with scientists is get into a bit of a God of the gaps argument. You can say, well, okay, explain that then. Explain how um, the universe came from nothing. 
what happens with that is if you put your faith in that gap, as science's understanding expands, that gap gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And the risk is that people will start losing their faith in that element of it. But if you avoid that, if you recognise that science answers how, religion answers why, then there is no conflict. You don't need to resort to a God of the gaps. You can say, God did it that way that science defines it, the way that science explains it. Now, the big one, of course, is evolution versus creation. Yeah? I'm not necessarily going to ask your view on it. I kind of care. I kind of don't. There are significant questions that raise doubts regarding the truth of evolution. There really are. Generally speaking, atheistic scientists won't talk to you about it, but there are questions. And I'm not going to be God of the gaps, but I don't understand how a complex piece of anatomy like the eye evolves step by step over time. I don't understand how the sexual reproduction, male and female, as opposed to just mitosis, where cells divide. How do you build that up step by step? I don't understand it. I'm not saying that there isn't an answer to it. What I'm saying is that there are faithful Christians who take the Bible seriously, believe in the Apostles and Nicene Creed, but also believe that God used evolution to form the earth. There are. Francis Collins is one of them. N.T. Wright, um, a biblical professor, is one of them. There are faithful Christians who deny evolution completely. What I'm trying to say is this is a third order concern. The way I kind of structure my understanding of how important a particular belief is, in the middle you've got the core stuff, the stuff that every Christian everywhere should agree on, otherwise you're not a Christian. And if you, like, if you look at the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, for me, that design defines that core. We have to believe Holy Trinity. We have to believe that God created the world. How is outside the, con- the remit of that creed, but that God created, that Jesus is the Son of God, is God himself in human flesh, that he came and died for our sins, that he rose again, that he ascended back into heaven, that one day he is returning, and that he now gives us the Holy Spirit and one another for faithful discipleship. Every Christian should agree with that. You've then got a secondary layer where I would put things like baptism and your belief about um, complementarianism or egalitarianism. You know, can women be elders? Can women be in leadership? Or is it only for men? The reason I put those in that second layer is because you kind of need to agree on them at at least the local church level to be able to work together. If you don't agree on those, you're going to be constantly fighting about them. Gifts of the Holy Spirit. There are Christians who believe that their gifts of the Holy Spirit are no longer given. I grew up in one of those churches. Whether or not that is true or not, you have to agree on that as a church. That is a second order concern. You can be saved and a Christian and believe that the Holy Spirit doesn't do that anymore. I reserve the right to call you wrong. And I reserve the right to lead this church in the way that we have come to agree and believe it is understood. That's a second order. And then you've got the third order. These are really more like opinions. I would put things like creation versus evolution in that third layer. You can partner and work with someone so long as you don't try and suggest that it's a second order. And you do get some people that talk about answers in Genesis, defending the Bible from the very first verse. As if the people that 
don't believe it, as the people who believe that you can combine evolution and faith, haven't thought about the Bible. It's not fair. It's not right. But it's a third order concern. So, four points I've made. Point one, science did not compete with Christianity. It arose from it. Point two, the belief that the material world is all that exists is precisely that. It is a belief. Point three, there are many believing scientists. And point four, science is compatible with our faith. Okay, question one. I've got another question that Alex sent in. Is Christmas a copycat of other myths? You must have seen this. Uh, and if you're on social media, you definitely will have seen this. But any time you get to kind of middle of November, someone will say, oh yeah, just your annual reminder. It's all copied. Jesus came along after all these other myths. Uh, I'm not going to talk. I'm going to show you a video. Partly because it's funny and partly because he says it better than I could. coming out to our service this morning and I pray that the rest of this Christmas day is wonderful for each and everyone. Not so fast, preacher man. Behold, it is I, Horus, Egyptian god of the sun, and while you all believe that you've been celebrating the birth of your Lord Jesus, you've really been celebrating the birth of me. For you see, thousands of years before your Jesus came around, I, Horus, was born on December 25th. I, Horus, was born of a virgin. I, Horus, was baptized by a man called Arnold the Baptizer, was crucified and was resurrected three days later. So you see, your Jesus is nothing more than plagiarized poppycock, and I, Horus, have come to feast upon the sorrow of you foolish Christians. Yeah, none of the stuff you just said is true. Yes, it is. No, there's no reference in Egyptian mythology to Horus being crucified or resurrected three days later. There's no documentation anywhere for the existence of a figure named Anup the Baptizer. Horus's mother was not a virgin woman, but the goddess Isis. And there is no specific date anywhere tied to the birth of Horus. I'm pretty sure there is. Actually, no. All of these claims and many others indicating that early Christians yoinked the mythology of Horus and stuck it on top of Jesus were all completely made up by Gerald Massey, a 19th century cuckoo banana bird self-taught Egyptologist who never provided the slightest shred of evidence for any of these claims and who was laughed out of the room by every serious Egyptologist on the planet. So thank you very much for your attempt to ruin our celebration of Christ's birth, but I'm afraid we're all still having a very Merry Christmas, Horus. Horus? Did I say my name was Horus? No, no, no. What I meant to say was, Behold, it is I, Mithras, Roman cultic god of the something-something, and while you all believe that you've been celebrating the birth of Jesus, you've really been celebrating the birth of me. For you see, I, Mithras, was born of a virgin. I, Mithras, had twelve disciples, and I, Mithras, gave those disciples a meal consisting of my body and my blood. Sound familiar, Christian dummies? Actually, Mithras was born from a rock, not of a virgin. He had two companions, not twelve disciples, and the Mithraic meal was one he shared with the sun god, where they feasted not on his own flesh, but on the flesh of a bull. But even if those claims were true, Christians were already confessing the virgin birth, recognizing the twelve apostles, and celebrating the Lord's Supper before they ever encountered any Mithraic cults. So I'm afraid that you've taken neither the holly nor the jolly 
out of our Christmas, Mithras. Oh, you must have misheard me. I I'm not Mithras. I'm, uh, Quetzalcoatl, Aztec god of the wind. And Valuol thinks that you've- No Christian on the face of the planet ever heard of Quetzalcoatl until the 16th century. There's an I'm Baldur, Norse god of the- There were 193 popes before Baldur's mythology was actually written down. Then I'm Horus, Egyptian god of the sun. You already did that one. All right, fine. I didn't want to completely humiliate you, but you've left me no choice. I shall now unveil myself to be the ancient deity whose mythology was inarguably stolen by early Christians. Behold, I am... The ancient Mesopotamian God of Judgment. Six thousand years before your Jesus spoke of returning to condemn the lost and resurrect the faithful, my followers proclaimed that I will return to destroy my enemies and raise the dead. So silence your joyful voices, Christians. Your Lord is nothing but a cheap common copy of me, the destructor who knows my many names. I am Volvus Sidroha. I am Lord of the Sibulia. I am Gozer the Gozerian. Gozer the Gozerian is from Ghostbusters. Dang it, why do so many people still know that movie? <laughs> Gerald Massey said about me were complete fabrications, there's no textual evidence whatsoever, why do atheists like Bill Maher reference these claims as if they were true? Well, Horace, I suppose it is strange that people who insist that they won't believe anything without verifiable evidence are more than willing to believe anything without verifiable evidence, as long as that thing can be used to mock the gospel. But we shouldn't be surprised when people reject proof of Christ's resurrection in favor of demonstrable lies that let them remain in unbelief. After all, Jesus did say, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I said that before Jesus did. Oh, you absolutely <laughs> did not. <laughs> can't say any better than Hans Fein did. Lutheran satire is a really good channel. There's like one video of his that I don't like because it mocks Pentecostals, but the rest of it is just gold, absolute gold. I can't say it better. People come up with this stuff, fabricated though it may be, demonstrably false though it may be, because it gives them an out. There was another Twitter thread that I found that um, a few months ago that I couldn't find again for this morning, but he got several of these memes saying, well, Jesus is like Horus, Jesus is like Mithras, Jesus is like Thor, Jesus is like any other kind of myth that you might come up with. And bit by bit just shows, no, it is poppycock. Jesus stands unique. Now there are some myths that echo elements of the Christian faith. There absolutely are. C.S. Lewis um, recognized that. But how he handled it was that the story of Christ is simply a true myth. A myth working on us the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. And one must be content to accept it in the same way, remembering that it is God's myth where the others are men's myths. The pagan stories are God expressing himself through the minds of poets, using such images as he found there, while Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call real things. There are stories in the myths of people laying down their lives, heroes and gods laying down their lives for the benefit of those that are following them. 
that is not a problem for us because we have all of this historical evidence that shows that actually Jesus actually happened. We don't have any of that for any of these other myths. But what these myths are are almost like echoes into the past of the hope of all creation, that Jesus would come and lay his life down and that we would have salvation in his name. Jesus is just a true myth, working like all the other myths do, echoing and working on the desires of our hearts. But the great difference is that it really happened and God really did it. Amen. Amen. So is Jesus a copycat of other myths? Nah. The other question that Alex had was more a statement that people come up with. You can't prove there is a God. And it usually follows up with, you're the one making the extraordinary claim, so you prove it. The burden of proof is on you. Now, on the one hand, this is true, actually. There is no exhaustive proof of God's existence that is going to satisfy everyone. There isn't. If there was, why would we need faith? But that is not the same thing as saying there is no evidence. In a court of law where you have a jury, the jurors are not expected to be 100% certain without any other question. What they are called to do is come to a position that is beyond reasonable doubt. You know, you can ask questions and questions and questions and dig in and dig in and not let go of a little, little bit of detail. Not to contradict my point, but arguably that's the whole point of the series Death in Paradise, if you've ever seen it. There's always some depiction of, well, it looks obviously like, it's like this, but then there's a corkscrew at the end of the bath or a, a cork left somewhere or the, it looks like the window was broken from the outside in, not the inside out. But in a court, we're only expected to get to beyond reasonable doubt. And I think that is where we are at with the evidences for God as well. I believe that there is evidence of design and creation. I believe that there is good historical evidence for the truth of the Christian faith. I believe that our faith makes sense of the world that we live in and proves to be helpful for people. In other words, it kind of works. I believe that there are signs and wonders occurring today that show that God is still living and active in our world. So given those evidences, I find myself believing that the belief that there is a God who made all that we see here and taste and touch is actually not the claim that should be labelled extraordinary. For me, the extraordinary claim is that there's nothing. That all we see here, taste and touch, is all that there is. That's the one that seemed bonkers to me. Now, some questions won't have an exhaustive answer. There is sometimes an element of mystery or things are open to interpretation. In situations like this, we need to go as far as logic, evidence and reason can take us and be prepared to take an educated leap of faith. It's not irrational or despite the evidence, but more the leap of faith we take when we decide to trust someone we don't know fully. It's the leap of faith that those of us who have been married take when you're stood at the altar. You take someone's hand and you say, I do. You don't know for sure that they're not going to do anything bad to you. Actually, because you're both people. <laughs> oh, that, I mean, that's delightful. But <laughs> the reality is we are all imperfect people. And whether we intend to or not, we are going to brush up against each other. We are going to have friction and we are going to hurt each other. We are. Isn't that right, Brenda? Absolutely. No. I refuse to believe that one. We don't get on each other's nerves at all. But 
we make that step of faith because we've got to know that person and so we've reduced the doubts and the questions that we've got about them. Yeah? Reduced, not eliminated. You still have to say, I am putting my hand in yours and I'm going to walk with you. In the same way, we can look at all the evidence that we've talked about throughout this series and say, do you know what? I think on balance, there is something there. And so I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and I'm going to say, Lord, if you're there, walk with me. That's my story. I was raised in a Christian home, but I was always encouraged to ask questions and given space to work out what I believed. I had a very powerful experience of God as a teenager that resolved a lot of the questions that I had. But then at 16, I've mentioned this before, I hit a brick wall and I had all these questions. One by one, I worked through them and I came out believing that, you know what? Yes, Jesus is still worth devoting my life to. I didn't have everything tied up in a bow. I hadn't dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. And even today, I can be hit by questions and doubts, especially if I'm looking at Twitter, where there's all sorts of people raising points I've not necessarily heard of. But when I hit one, I read, I think, I pray my way through it. And usually, actually every time up until now, I make the choice that the evidence and the reason is strong enough to trust that I can take that next step in my faith, even though it's not a 100% slam dunk. That's the journey of faith that we're called to until that day he returns. And we won't need to go be up to reasonable doubt because we will see him with our eyes. So that's that question. One more that I want to do just briefly. Uh, it was one that Bronwyn asked in our, um, word, one of our Word and Worship evenings. I don't think we're going to have time for other questions. So if you do have one, let us know and we can do another morning like this. Um, the question is, how do we know what, is in the, what in the Bible is for us? The Bible's huge. 66 books, thousands, well, about 1,200 pages in my copy of the Bible there. This is another big topic. Um, we could do a whole message about this. And it's what, the, what we call hermeneutics, or the, the rules and the principles for interpreting the Bible. And there are different hermeneutics at play in the world. For example, John Stott heavily influenced the church that I grew up in to express this hermeneutical rule that you can't look at the Gospels and at the Book of Acts and immediately apply it today. Now, they said this because they were a cessationist church and they didn't believe that God still heals or God still gives prophecies or God still gives the gift of tongues. So, of course, you have to come up with one way to say, well, you can't apply that because uh, that's not fair. You can't do that rule because that was then, this is now. Well, what else are they for? Yeah. So there are bad hermeneutics. There are outside the church. How, how many of you have seen people um, responding to us looking at Leviticus and saying homosexuality is an abomination? And then there's some sort of response of, well, OK, seeing as we look at Leviticus, why do you feel like you can eat pork? Why do you feel like you can eat shellfish? Why do you feel like you can mix fabrics or not kill someone who's working on the Sabbath day? Come on, just which of these are we supposed to believe in? And of course, what they're trying to do is get you to say, well, okay, yeah, we don't need those ones, so maybe we don't need that one. They're trying to get you to agree with the spirit of the age. Well, there is a decent answer to it. And to get there, I want to suggest just some. Now, I don't want to establish a Trinity Life Church hermeneutic, because I don't know if I'm clever enough to. 
But in danger of doing precisely that, I want to give you some ideas of how you can read the Bible and work out what is for, for then, what is for you here and now. First of all, context is key. Don't read a verse and wrench it out of context and say, this means that. There is a local context for the verse. That is where it belongs in the whole book of the Bible that you're reading. Don't forget that chapters and verses are not inspired. But beyond that, there is a literary genre for that book. Not every book of the Bible is the same. Some are books of poetry, some are books of wisdom, some are books of history telling a story. Some that look like books of history are actually counted by the, among the prophets because it presents God's view on history rather than more of a human view on history. There are different genres, so you need to look at the genre of the book. A good book to help here is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. I'll send that link out. Um, you've got to look at the social and the cultural context. There are things that only make sense if you have looked at the culture that something comes out of. And we can't expect to read the Bible 2,000 years removed at least from the events it describes and think we're going to get it all right like that. We've got to do a bit of our homework and put ourselves in the shoes of those who were back then. We also have to think of the canonical context. What I mean by that is where does this verse, where does this chapter, where does this book sit within the overall story of the Bible? Scripture interprets scripture is the principle sometimes people talk about. Secondly, after looking at the context, read prayerfully. We can sometimes think, and this is what I don't get about atheists who say, I've read the Bible more than you, I can tell you what it says. Well, the trouble is, you can't just understand the Bible up here. You understand the Bible in your heart and by the Spirit. So you've got to read it prayerfully. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that um, the natural man is unable to discern the things of the Spirit. So you need supernatural help to understand the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yep. We're getting there. <laughs> Third of all, look for Christ in the passage or the verse that you're reading. Remember the road to Emmaus, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, beginning with Moses, that means beginning with Genesis 1-1, he talked to them about how he was revealed throughout the whole of what we call the Old Testament. There isn't a single part of scripture that should not reveal something about the Lord Jesus to you. As you're reading prayerfully, ask him, ask the Holy Spirit to show you where Jesus is in that bit that you're reading. Then you've got to filter by the new covenant. This is how I handle the scary bits. An awful lot of the stuff that we read that might put the chills down our back or put the fear of God into us, not always but generally can be explained by the fact that we're looking at the old covenant, not the new covenant. We're looking at the law, and we've got to remember the purpose of the law was to show us that we were wrong, to show us that we were sinful, to show us that we needed Christ. And then when we come into Christ, we don't have any need of the law anymore because we have the promise of forgiveness. We have the promise that he gives us all we need. We have the promise that he fills us with the Holy Spirit, that he washes away all of the bad and he brings us into new life. We've got to remember that we are under grace, not law. We've got to remember that we are Gentiles, not Jewish people. An awful lot of the stuff that might scare us were actually written to the people of Israel under the covenant that God made with that nation. We are not in that nation. We relate, we've been grafted in through faith in Christ. 
And because of that, we have freedom in Christ. Paul says this, all things are lawful, but not everything is beneficial. So we have to filter by the covenant. We have to look at indicatives before imperatives. What I mean by that is if you look at a Pauline book, um, the first half of any Pauline book is usually telling us what God has done, who we are now in Christ, and what is now true of us because we have put our trust in him. Only when he's laid that foundation does he then say, so then, walk as in light, not as in dark. Forsake the darkness, walk in what he has done for you. So we focus on who we are first and then how we are supposed to live because of that. We've done that this morning when we remembered that before anything else, we are loved by him. When someone says, who are you? You can say, I'm a child of the king and I'm loved by him. Just a general thing, apply personally first. If you're reading a passage and you think, oh, Bob really needs to hear this. <laughs> Chances are you really need to hear this. Because Jesus says, take out the speck of the log from your own eye before going against the speck of dust in your brother's eye. So apply it to yourself first. Take a hermeneutic of humility. I've talked earlier about the three tiers of kind of doctrine and belief. If we're talking about something that is not that core and not that second layer, assume that you might be mistaken. People have been mistaken about what the Bible says. And if you submit yourself to one another in the church, if you submit yourself to other people who have read the Bible before you, that is going to keep you safe because you're not doing it in pride. You're doing it in humility. And then the last one is read your Bible before you read your study aids. I don't have, I, I do have study Bibles, but I don't generally read them because the temptation is I don't look at the Bible. I look at the study notes underneath to find out what it really says. Trouble is, what the study notes say might not be what it really says. So read the Bible before you go to commentaries, before you go to your study Bible notes, before you go and find out what other people say. Now, do go through that step. It is good to consult with others and to work out whether you're completely innovating. I think that's in that room. I don't think that's a building alarm. But read your Bible first. One of them is inspired, the other one isn't. Alex? And just before you finish, just especially going on to what I asked, just some wisdom gained from experience. Don't, in, don't get into heated arguments with an atheist who's yes. angry and build on their anger, make them angrier. Mm -hmm. If they are angry, I actually see that as a good thing because it means they're maybe not quite content with their beliefs. Yeah. And there's an in, but also I would just say love them first. Yeah. Just love them first. And that's actually much easier. Yeah. So, I, I've got a friend who has just recently come back to the faith. He spent a few years away. And now every day on Facebook, he's posting out his Bible verse of the day from Bible.com. And there is one, one of his friends who without fail will post some horrible inflammatory content saying, it's all just a bunch of fiction. No, 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 no. And I've seen people debating him and it just entrenches him. My mate's response now is just, bless you, brother. Heart emoji. Yeah. They can't argue with that. Exactly. Well, he, he does try, to be fair, but he's given up. Dave. Yeah. 
So apolog apologetics is a little bit like what this whole series is. So apologetics is trying to give an answer for why we believe what we believe. Why it isn't just a bunch of bunkum, why it isn't just a bunch of poppycock, but why it is actually true. So that's where, that is kind of what we've been working on in this series. I had a colleague at work who um, I found out after he'd retired that he was doing something in the church. I just had a conversation with him and he sort of said, oh no, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm an atheist. And my response to him was, ah, so you're a man of faith too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other way I've heard it is, frankly, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. <laughs> Absolutely. Just to wrap things up then, some books that I've mentioned, Through a Glass Darkly by Alistair McGrath, how to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, both really good books. How to Read the Bible book by book. If you want to appreciate the genre and the content of each particular book, that's a good one. How to Read the Bible Through the Jesus Lens. If you want to see how each book of the Bible points at Jesus, that is a fantastic book. Uh, Confronting Christianity, hands up. Uh, just so I'm not accused of plagiarism. An awful lot of the content I've done about science came out of what she's written in this book. She has given just 12 really good answers to really difficult questions. Seriously, get it. If you haven't already got it, get it. It's worth it. And then Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, just pointing out the reason, uh, reasonability, is that even a word? I've said too much this morning, clearly. But the rationality, that's the word, the rationality of Christian faith, especially when you focus on that core that I was talking about, that mere Christianity that all churches in all time would agree with. Really, really good book, really classic. Thank you. Um, we will have, we don't have time for questions. We are, good grief, over time. But um, hopefully you found this series interesting and useful. Um, I have certainly found it stretching, preparing for it. Maybe we'll do a, a take two of it at some point and look at some other questions. But for now, we are gonna worship. The kids are gonna come back in. Shall we stand and sing just one more song? Just to close our time.